0: This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond.
1: I'm Spencer Brudig.
0: I'm Will Johnson.
1: This show contains graphic material and is meant
0: for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles.
2: One of the aspects of this case that was that is troubling to Erica's family, her mother and her sister. There has been virtually no coverage of this case in the United States whatsoever, um, and she was, you know, this beautiful. American college student brutally murdered in a foreign country, and it's a cold case. And so they're, they've are they been extremely discouraged by the lack of, of attention that it's gotten here in the United States. And yet in Chile, it is like the biggest news you could imagine over there. I mean, her face is all over everywhere.
1: This week on True Crime Chronicles, our story takes us out of the country to Temuco, Chile, a city known for being in between the Chilean Lake District to the south and a snow-capped volcanic ski resort to its north. It is here that 22-year-old recent Georgetown University graduate, Erica Hagen has decided to come to teach English to elementary school kids. She was no stranger to Chile. She had traveled to it several times before while at Georgetown, where she had majored in psychology and minored in Spanish. She figured she would teach English for a few months and then travel back to the US in time to start her graduate degree. But she never made it back. It is early September, and Erica has planned a morning workout with her host family brother.
3: They had started working out on the Thursday, September the 4th, but on September the 5th, she told him that she was too sore. It's her first time to work out, and she was too sore to go back to the gym the very next day.
1: This is Erica's mother,
3: Regina O'Neill, but instead, she chose to walk around with another friend that she had met in the States. He'd come from Chile, and she was the ambassador of Georgetown. So she would take people around and show them around the school, and that's how she met him. So she, uh, when she got down there, they, they were friends again. They became friends, and she was seen walking around, getting coffee, you know, going to shop and then coming back home later that night. And she also wrote a blog
1: Christine Byers is a journalist for Five on Your Side in St. Louis, Missouri. She has covered this case extensively.
2: Kind of a little bit of a travel theme to the blog, but mostly just, you know, her
3: thoughts and that. She posted on her blog, and sometime after that, things went crazy.
1: Erica had been staying in an apartment at the school she was teaching at.
3: The apartment was built inside in the, the the science lab. There were two bedrooms and each bedroom had two beds. But so she was the only one staying there.
2: There were some people that had spotted some smoke coming from her apartment and apparently went and a guard told them, oh no, we've handled it, everything is okay. And then not too long after that, a custodian um, noticed that there was water uh, in, the, in the science lab, which was located in the same building of Erica's apartment. And so that, um, of course, led people to f- try to figure out where the water was
3: coming from. Now, it was a Saturday, so there was no students there. And then they called
1: the host family. The custodian and Erica's host father enter into her apartment looking for the source of the water. They walk in to discover a horrible sight.
2: and it turned out that uh, it was the bathtub in Erica's apartment where her body had been left submerged in scalding hot water.
3: She was brutally murdered. Uh, The way it was done was uh, with a fire poker. So it was spontaneous, it wasn't something planned. They grabbed a fire poker from her fireplace. They hit her over the head twice, breaking her skull both times. She fought back. She's got bruises all over her body where she tried to defend herself, um, but she crawled into a bedroom. And the bed mattress became just blood-soaked
2: there where she must have laid for a while. And then there's evidence of another attack happening after she apparently had tried to crawl away from
3: there. It was harder. It was even more vicious than the first two attacks. So She ended up with four cracked skulls, her, her, her skull was cracked in four places. and. I don't mean cracked, I mean busted open. An autopsy listed her cause of death as blunt
2: force trauma to the head. Um, But her body was found nude in this bathtub um, that was left running with scalding hot water. And um, one of the most chilling details that her mother shared with me was the only way she knew that that was her daughter's body was by the tattoo um, on her foot and her foot was left out of the water. And it was of her favorite Bible verse, of uh, First Corinthians, which is, of course, about how love is kind and, and that sort of thing. And so she knew that, she, she said that's how she knew it was her daughter.
1: As local police begin investigating, they notice lots of details that just don't add up. Someone tried to clean up the scene after the attack.
2: The crime scene definitely had evidence of an attempted cover-up. Um, whoever did it tried to set a fire in the apartment. Um, you know, crime scene photos show that there was a fire in the apartment and like and like I had said, there, there were people that saw smoke coming from the apartment. But apparently, that the apartment wasn't very well ventilated, so the fire really didn't get a chance to really get going. It
3: burned enough to burn the electronics that were thrown into the fire. But they didn't throw all her electronics in the fire, like her laptop was still there. She had another phone that was there. It was just weird, the things that were put in the fire and then things that were left out that you would've thought somebody would've burned if they were trying to cover things up and didn't.
1: After a couple weeks, investigators have a list of seven or eight suspects, but they are convinced that it was the campus security guard who had knocked on the door after the initial report of smoke had come in. They decide to take the guard to trial for the murder of Erica Hagan.
2: They end up charging the guard. Uh, there is a trial that goes on, and he is acquitted at trial. Um, and part of what has gone on ever since that is all kinds of allegations of evidence that's been mishandled by the police and by authorities.
3: They had cameras on the apartment on the, uh, on the, on the campus and stuff and they didn't use all of them in the, in the original trial. In the DNA samples, they somehow got the office, police officer's DNA mixed in. What? So that was, you know, couldn't be used basically. It was, there was too many components. One of the
2: biggest glaring problems with the case is that the prosecuting attorney at the time on the case had a personal relationship with Erica's host family. And members of Erica's host family um, are actually suspects in this case
3: and have been questioned. The man should have reclused himself whether he committed something wrong or not. He should have rec- reclused himself from being the prosecutor because he was related to the suspects. But there are more suspects besides the ones that they, they, they uh, interviewed. So we're not claiming anybody right now is, is the person that did it. We, we, there's too many questions that need to be answered first.
1: Regarding the man that was actually tried and acquitted, Erica's mother does not believe the security guard had anything to do with her daughter's actual murder.
3: The one they tried to use to get to the guard, which the guard was not wise, and he went to the door and knocked on the door to see what's going on with the fight, you know, smoke. And a man answered, not opened the door. He just yelled, oh, me and my girlfriend's got it. We, we figured We burned something that we shouldn't have burned, and we put it out. And the guard went away. And he eventually got accused for doing it, but he didn't do it. I think he may know something. Maybe he recognized the voice or something and he's not willing to share that and he's scared.
1: So what happened to Erica Hagan? Who did this to her? Erica's mother says that there is one theory she buys
3: into. Police had the phones tapped. of of Everybody they had called in as uh, uh, possible suspects. It got lost during the first trial. It showed up after the trial. So on Chilean TV, they obtained a
2: recorded phone call uh, in which this young man called his ex boyfriend and said something to the effect of, Please tell me you didn't have anything to do with this, followed by a long pause, and what do you want me to say?
1: Years go by with no justice for Erica's family, but they don't give up hope.
2: Erica's mother um, and sister. Started up a petition drive, trying to get signatures from people to plea for Chilean authorities to reopen the case. And so, here in St. Louis, uh, where Vivian lives, um, Erica's sister Vivian lives. She basically took that petition out. She works at a at a popular St. Louis restaurant, and she told me she carried that petition with her at work and uh, would get all of her coworkers and and customers and and that to sign it. Um, And she basically would walk the streets sometimes and talk to anyone who would listen and ask them to sign the petition. And she said that people were so compassionate um, about hearing what happened to her sister, that they would sign this petition. And she was able to get about a thousand signatures um, here in the St. Louis area to add to the collection of signatures from really across the country and around the world asking the Chilean authorities to, to reopen the
3: case.
1: Erica's case has not gone unnoticed with the people of Chile.
3: I had, back when I started it started a Facebook page that was open to the public, but it was centered in Chile. And it was called Justicia Para Erica, Faith Hayden, or Erica Hagen, And that means justice for Erica. And it's been getting some popularity because they were having a, a women's movement women's rights because like 80% of the cases, uh, the crimes are against women. And the most recent one was uh, a young lady that had gotten raped and they wouldn't prosecute the, the rapist even though other people claimed he raped her, and raped them and she killed herself. These women, especially women, the men involved too, were doing this big movement and they said, we want Erica to be part of our movement. And they pretty much put her at the forefront because she was an American, and I thought they could get a little bit more um, attention of people because she was she was beautiful.
2: There are dozens of people that have taken to the streets in Chile carrying pictures of Erica Hagen through the streets and demanding justicia para Erica Hagen. You know, and um, it's really fascinating to see this country where this family. Um, doesn't Doesn't understand the language and and has never been to, and you know rightfully could maybe not like it so much given what the authorities did in in terms of the investigation and handling their case, but Erica's family has this deep love for these people that have taken up her cause over there and are keeping her name in the news and her face in the streets, and I mean it was six years ago, so. It's really interesting to see that um, that bond sort of form between perfect strangers that don't even speak the same language. In this case,
1: and although it has been over six years since Erica Hagen was murdered, these movements have made an impact. First, a Chilean court awarded financial damages to Erica's family and admitted to botching the investigation.
2: Earlier this year, the Chilean government awarded Erica's father about a $250,000 settlement over its mishandling of the case and the evidence.
1: And secondly, Erica's family recently received hopeful news in their want for justice. The case has finally been reopened by Chilean investigators.
2: It's hard to really narrow down what aspect of all of this pressure was was finally what it took to, to do this. But one of the developments included the fact that an attorney for the Colegio Bautista in Chile, um, which is the school where Erica was teaching at the time. One of the attorneys um, convinced a judge uh, using a lot of Erica's mother's information about the case to allow the school to reopen that apartment. And so when they got back in the apartment that had been sealed for six years, there was further contamination done of the crime scene. Not too long after that happened, did the Chilean um, prosecutors, National Prosecutor's Office, uh, announce that the case was being reopened?
1: Erica's family, including her mother, are hoping to be in the country to continue applying pressure to close this case properly, as well as meet with the people keeping Erica's name and legacy alive.
2: So they are hoping to go to this country that they've never been to and retrace her final steps as well as be there in person to experience the courtroom there and to share their impact statements and, and meet with this legal team that is working on this case pro bono. Um, again, you know, there's this national movement uh, afoot in Chile to bring justice to cases involving female victims. So this group of attorneys has formed and agreed to take on this case pro bono to um, see it through all the way. So you know, Erica's mom affectionately calls them her team, um, which is pretty funny, but she's like, you know, she wants to meet them and, and she wants to be part of, of the experience of seeing this case reopened. So I don't know that they've set a date yet, but they're working on it.
1: Christine believes that there is a chance that this case gets solved and Erica's family gets some semblance of justice.
2: As far as what I know about the forensic evidence, um, they do have DNA from the host family's father at the crime scene. Um, But it's also reasonable to think his DNA would be present at the crime scene because that's where she lived and he was part of the host family. But... um, there's, you know, they're going to have to take the stand um, if they are asked to do so during a trial, um, and so that could always lead to something different. Um, and, you know, with a with a new, fresh set of eyes of investigators on the case, um, investigators that don't have any relationship to the host family um, or to the original prosecutor in this case, there could be things that were overlooked. I mean, the mom. Erica's mother sent a list of 75 questions that she came up with alone um, that should have been asked and answered in this case. Um, And so there's certainly a lot there to go over.
1: Now, there also have been reports that several people working the case and their outspoken allies in Chile have been threatened.
3: I do know. For a fact, my family's a little bit concerned, and I am a little bit too. My pro- my lead prosecutor had to back down from being out in the public and announcing that he was my lead prosecutor because of threats in his family. Uh, other people that have uh, they had protests and vigils in Erica's name, and they they been threatened because they just because they had justice for Erica on their windowshields you know, in the back of their windows and stuff. So there are some pretty um, powerful people. Everybody seems to think behind this that's able to do this, but there are uh, people, some people are scared that's working the case.
1: All of this said, Regina and the rest of her family are filled with hope and believe that justice will come.
2: Regina's hopeful. You know, she was certainly overjoyed that they're reopening the case because that's all she wants is someone to answer her questions.
0: I'm Will Johnson for True Crime Chronicles. I'm here with Spencer Brudig and Reed Redman is actually out this week. Uh, Spencer, thanks for bringing us the story. Uh, you know, I'm struck by the nature of any crime like this where it's outside of the country and having to deal with, you know, local authorities somewhere else and a whole different, you know, justice system in some cases. Yeah, well, it, it
1: complicates... Everything. I mean, if you think about even dealing with a crime in the United States, it's it can certainly be an incredibly messy and a traumatic experience for anyone. But then you complicate things by having to deal with an entirely different justice system. They operate in the way their police work, in their uh, prosecuting attorneys work, in the way that people are defended. Then add in a different language, Spanish. And Erica Hagen's family does not speak that language. So you have to have translators and interpreters come in and, you know, translate both sides. Uh, and then you have the actual physical distance that the family, you know, would have to fly down to Chile in order to attend these hearings, make impact statements. And then on top of all of this, you have a global pandemic which has essentially stopped any sort of proceedings, even though that the case has now recently been reopened.
0: Yeah, I have to say it made me think of other sort of big cases like this that have gotten, I mean, mean, this one is not as well-known as some big cases like Natalie Holloway comes to mind,
1: right? And and that was one of the f- the first comparisons I had was it was a you know a young woman who had just recently graduated from college, uh, you know I, I don't know why the news cycle didn't pick up on this. It did get a little bit of international coverage at the very beginning, but then got buried beneath uh, you know who knows what. Natalie Holloway captured the imagination of our entire country for you know. I don't know, 6 months to a year and then continued to be followed up on. I asked Christine about that and, you know, we kind of were theorizing that, you know, Erica Hagen was a little bit older, Natalie was in high school. It doesn't really make sense why this didn't become a big case in in the national media and, you know, why people around our country don't know about this. It's really weird. Yeah, at the end of the day, you know, you've got a young woman who was, you know, just out of college. Yeah, she had just graduated from Georgetown. And and she made this really, you know, wonderful decision to go down. And she really liked Chile and the people down there. She wanted to go and uh, teach English to young kids. And her objective was then to come back and and go to grad school and, and finish up her degree. She had majored in psychology. She spoke Spanish because she had minored in it, uh, I think in part because she had traveled to Chile and she wanted to continue to learn that language. So, uh, yeah, just a young woman at at the beginning of her life and, uh, you know, cut down.
0: All right, Spencer, thanks for bringing us the story this week and where can people go to learn more about True Crime Chronicles? Yeah, we have a Facebook group called Inside the Crime Vault. It is
1: about 5,000 members. It's growing every day. It's a great spot to dive into uh, cases like this and other cases. And you can uh, talk about true crime with other fellow fans of the genre. And the other thing, too, is if you like... True Crime Chronicles. If you like this episode, please go to wherever you're listening to this and give us a like, give us a subscribe. It really helps us out uh, to grow the show and and get this into the ears of, of other people around the country.
0: All right. And Spencer, next week, we will be telling you the story of a, a cold case that might not be cold anymore. It's actually almost 50 years old. So one of the older ones we, we've covered here. So join us next week. We'll be back with a new case and a new story.